an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match and programming was the fuse as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket Jeff Fulton here. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 11 of Into the Vertical Blank, an interview with John Williams, a game developer for the Atari 8-Bit Computers, Atari ST, Commodore 64, Commodore C16, Amiga, as well as many other platforms. A few weeks back, I was paging through an old issue of ST Action Magazine, Issue 28, August 1990, and found an interview with John Williams. The magazine was profiling him because they had a demo of his game, Paramax, on the cover disc. I had heard of John Williams before because while looking through the Atari Age forums, I had seen he had just released a game called Time Slip for the Atari 8-bit computers. I emailed John and started discussing some of the technical details and techniques he used to create his beautifully colorful action games for the Atari computers, and he agreed to an interview. So here we are. We'll get to that interview in just a few minutes. Before we do though, I want to describe his games a little bit more so the conversation we have is easier to follow. John created five unique titles for the Atari 8-bit computers and one for the ST. Three of his games have been converted to the Atari 5200 and have also been improved for the Atari 8-bits with a release as 2020 versions. These games are Baby Burks 2020, it's a combination of Robotron and Berserk. Major Blink 2020, a combination of Amador or Kid Grid and the classic game Crossfire. Time Slip 2020, a truly unique game with three scrolling sections on a single screen. Each section scrolls right to left and you can play each one individually. The most impressive of these games is Time Slip. Here are some notes John posted about this game on Atari Age. From John Williams' document. You'll find a link to this in the show notes. Time Slip, Atari A8, 8-bit 48K, version 1.0, the 12th of April, 2020. Time Slip was originally released on the Commodore C16 in 1985 and was followed by the Atari A8 version, which came a few months later, in 1986. The C16 original version had to run in 16K, so there was no room for a proper front end or options. The Atari A8 version was a quick conversion which added the front end and made some changes to the feel of the game. For example, the addition of a window of horizontal movement allowed the player to speed up the action by moving to the far left limit. John's document from here goes on to explain the improvements in the 2020 Atari 8-bit version. 
He also has strategies on how to play the game well. I encourage you to download the document, download the game, get on an emulator, and play. Now let's move on to the other games John created for these classic 8-bit Atari machines, and also the game he created for the 16-bit machines. John also created a 2019 game called Burks 4, after Burks 1, 2, and 3 were released on the C16, and the classic title Jet Boot Jack for the Atari 8-bit computers, as well as for a host of other machines. The ST game he created is called Pyramax. It's a take on the Burks formula, where you must find the secret to escaping each scrolling multi-room level and make it to the top of a pyramid. All of his games for every system are earmarked by incredibly colorful graphics, nice sound effects, and a high level of difficulty, especially for me. I will have a video up on our YouTube channel and on IntoTheVerticalBlank.com that shows all of John's games. Now, on to the interview. Hey, John. Hi. Hey, how's it going? It's Jeff. How's, how's it Nice to meet you. I got nice it. Nice to see you. <laughs> I set it up to record. It, it looks light outside right now. Oh, it's not that late. It's 8.30, right? Yeah, it's 8.30. It's not too bad. Not that bad. Exactly. Um, well, nice to meet you. I'm Jeff. My brother and I do a podcast that is all about Atari and yep. specifically called Into the Vertical Blank. It's about the magic of the Atari 8-bit computers. But we do talk about there's vertical blanks on the ST also. And on the 7800 and all those. In fact, every, every computer basically has a vertical blank. I saw over the last couple of weeks that you had been started putting up some new versions of some of your games and some new actual games that you were porting from the C16 over to the Atari 8-bits. Yeah. The other day I was looking for people to interview that worked on Atari computers, you know, when games, yeah. even if you don't remember as much as you, you want to, right? No. Just like, I don't remember. But, and, I, and I, I went through this ST Action Magazine, I go, every issue they would have like one developer. And I'm going, I'm going to find the developer that's in here and we're going to do a podcast about the developer, maybe not get an interview. But then right here is John Williams. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've just read about John Williams. He's on the Atari Age forums and he's just put up a bunch of new games. So I was playing Time Slip and I'm like, yeah. I know this guy. Well, I don't know him, but I know this guy anyway. So I figured that um, we are, one of the things that we like to cover are people who are, who made games back in the day and are making games now. We call them pro brewers, right? You were a pro back then. You're doing yeah. brew games now. You may or may not sell them, and so you are a second pro brewer. The, the other, the last person we did was Dan um, Kitchen. He worked at Activision, and he's making a game now also. So um, I just I did listen to your antic interview with Kevin. So I don't want to cover all yep. the same territory, but I just wanted to get a little bit more information about how you started with computers and Atari, and a little bit about the ST stuff, and afterwards some of the stuff that Kevin didn't cover. Yeah, I retired some, uh, I suppose, seven or eight years ago because my uh, my journey through the, the computing went from Atari and Commodore through to the consoles and then full-time on things like PlayStation and uh, uh, Wii and let's, Xbox. Let's get there. So I uh, let me I'll ask you a couple of questions about the beginning. Okay, so the beginning, yeah. I understand that you were working on a, a pet as really the first home computer that you were using? Yeah, I mean, I went from uh, programmable, pro programmable calculators, which were my first, I had a Texas TI-59, 
So I was programming in that. And then um, because I worked in a sort of radio and TV repair place, which had a, a showroom as well, I was able to get hold of a Commodore PET at trade price because they were really expensive in the UK. And uh, that's where I started, just in basic. And then that just wasn't fast enough. So I started programming in hex and literally in hex, writing it out, you know, on a sheet of paper, working out all the branches and then bung it in, in uh, the monitor just in single bytes, which was a nightmare. Now the, the PET is also 6502? Yep, it was, but I was also into the electronic side of things as well. So the, the, the PET had a user port and I would sort of play around with driving stuff from that and sensing stuff as well. Oh, wow. So that wow. was quite cool. That's really cool. And then I, I read in SD Actions, you can let me know how, you know, they weren't actually the greatest resource in the world back then. There was like seven 14-year-olds that were writing for two magazines <laughs> at the same time. Like one was Amiga Action and SD Action in the same office. Oh, yeah. Something like that. And sometimes you don't even know if they even liked games. I mean, it was kind of funny. <laughs> but but um, so you don't know how accurate their information is. But the, they mentioned that you got an 800 and you and you got yep. a cassette drive and you were just appalled at how crappy the cassette drive was oh, i have no... to say so yeah yes. because it when it, when the 800 came out in the uk uh, i remember seeing the ad for it, it was great it was in color you know brilliant what could you ask for uh so i i had to save up loads of money to to buy one over here because it was super expensive and all i could afford was uh, the cassette drive but the the commodore pet was was great you could name programs and load in a named program and all sorts of stuff and the atari was just uh, pretty poor in you know re relation to the to the pet it was just awful you know that the the system was was pretty bad um i think it coming from the the commodore that's what made it seem worse i think the people that, that were just straight onto the atari probably didn't even know so if you if you low if you started at um, position a hundred and went to position a thousand, but accidentally went one over and you added stuff you went into memory into some weird memory location, would your program just get completely screwed up that you were loading in because you you loaded in too much into memory? What would happen? No, it, it would it would look for a header on the tape, so it, it knew there was a program on there, and if you missed the header, it just carried on going. <laughs> So, you know, your, your tape would just run and run and run. But the, the thing is, you, you, I guess most people just had one program on each side of the uh, of a tape. Oh, I see. So like a so basic programmer. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, you, if you were trying to hold, have a tape to hold a bunch of different programs for you programming coding in basic or something, you were kind of yeah. screwed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so you, it would be really difficult for an Atari user. As far as I can remember, don't forget my memory is really bad being so old. But if you had a couple of programs on, you know, you'd struggle to find the second one on the side. Then because of that, you created Ace. Um, well, what did that do? Well, that added some of the features that I felt were missing. So you could name a program and you could verify the program as well, which is something you couldn't do. So you could actually check that it was safely on the tape before turning off your, your program. So it actually had a number of sort of um, areas within it. So you, you boot up ACE and then you could select how much you wanted to load into memory. 
because it also had stuff like renumber, um, auto line number oh, wow. generation, um, had binary load and save, which you would use if you were doing some sort of machine code stuff. So I had quite a few bits and pieces on it. The cassettes now all had to use Ace whenever you loaded them in? No, it was it would work anyway, because basically it saved a, an extra header in front of the, the standard program. So it would, it would say the next program on tape effectively is whatever. Got so you, you would save a small program which contained the name of the program. Very so cool. So you, you could have, uh, say, four or five programs on the side. So you created a disk you, header, a disk header, like a diskette header for your cassette drive, basically. Yeah, that was cool, because then you could um, ask it to load a particular program, and it would just search through the tape to load it. So then you're, you have your Atari 800, and you're one of the, like, four people that are reading Page 6 magazine, right? Because there's, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're probably contributing to it for all I know. No, um, no. It was really hard to get anything in the UK about the, the Ataris. I, I believe it. Even here, well, okay, so in the USA, they sold a lot more of them. But by the time yeah. 84 went away, it was all Commodore here. I mean, it was yeah, hard to get same here. Yeah. But before that, we did have three or four magazines that were pretty good and things like that. And um, So you had your 800, and then, and then you started making games. But which, which yeah. game did you make first? Did you start on the 800 making games? Well, I, I suppose first, the first games I wrote were on the pet. The, the usual sort of Space Invaders game and uh, some other, you know, really basic games in, in machine code, even though they're basic, you see what I mean? They're simple games. Uh, and then I went to the, the Atari and I just started playing around, really, with, with the assembler cartridge initially. But then I moved on to Assembler a disc, because it was just so much better. Too yeah, and you, you could um, assemble it to disc and do all sorts of stuff with it. How did you go from making some games in PET to getting Atari 800 to suddenly making Jet Boot Jack, which is one of the, I mean, it's one of the most difficult, but one of the most colorful, best games of yeah. that era for the Atari. Well, that, that, that literally just came about because I was experimenting when I first got the assembler, experiment with the little things. And, and I wanted to make it so that I didn't have to animate a character, basically. It was a real cheat because you know, if I just made a, a simple character that just jets. moves side, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything looked, by the way, the animation aside, uh, you couldn't tell. Everything you make looks beautiful. So, yeah, well, that, that was it. Was the reason the lifts came about, the well, elevators, I guess, yeah. in, for the UK, lifts for the US, on. yeah, um, was because I had to get them from one level to another. And I, I thought, well, you know, one way would just be to get him to move up on an automated thing and I actually came across a, uh, a disc the other day which was my very first experimentation on it and it's you know it's so awful but it's but you can see what sort of where it came from and then it just evolved from that and then I I, I was into the uh, technical side of stuff anyway with all the you know, vertical blanks your sprites are multicolored it's not really it's either players layered or they care yeah they're just picture. just two two players overlaid um which again you you know when you're first doing it you you, you don't know any of this stuff i think the the thing that helped was day ray atari right i man right. i managed to get hold of a copy of that copy that song i have a paper <laughs> copy that i put into a binder somewhere it's up there yeah i got mine in a binder as well very well thumbed yeah exactly uh, it, it was it was just to me it was just the bible 
and um, that really helped with, with everything. Well, I could notice that you are you use that five color character mode, eight bits wide but sixteen bits high. Is that? It's, it's an eight by eight, but two two pixels form one of the four colors. Got it. So you can have color, you can have four colors next to one yeah. another, um, yeah. and you oh, and you can choose the fifth color if you want to by inverse or something like that, right? Like, yeah. That's one right. of them. If you use a fifth color, you can't use one of the other colors. There's there's some rules, yeah. right? About the bits. It is, yeah, yeah. Because if if you know, because it's only got 128 characters in a set, if you, if you add the the, um, the seventh bit, you flag it as negative, then it'll use a different color. That's the fourth color. If got you see it. what I mean. You can change those colors per line too, if you had enough cycles. Oh yeah, I was right? doing that. So yeah, yeah, you can yeah. see it in time slip uh, and yeah. and in um, uh, Jetboot Jack. Obviously, you're changing those, yeah. which has got to be a lot of data to manage. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, but it's only getting a, a system in place. You know, I, I think it's because I came from the um, the sort of TV servicing side of things. I kn I just knew how displays worked because I did all you know um, exams and all that side of things. That was my my original job was was fixing televisions. So I knew all about the way the displays worked. And, uh, you know, once I saw how a display list worked, I thought, oh, yeah, okay. So you get an interrupt and you can just change everything, basically, as long as you've got enough cycles to do it. So you create that game. It's a great selling game on the 800 per se when you lower the cost down to $2, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it did actually do pretty well because um, luckily it it was it was sort of a, a good time in the UK for Atari, but only a year later, the, the bottom fell out of the Atari market. Really. Got it. And it was actually was sold here too. Um, there was a yeah, yeah. English software sold it here. From that experience, you said, "Hey, I can be a professional programmer now instead of doing TV repair or you know instead of doing yeah. electronics." And, yeah, um, well, that was basically it. Well, I noticed that back then you put out Jetboot Jack and then Time Slip came out a couple of years later. So between there, oh, yeah. you were doing C16 games? No, the, 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 when I left work, I actually did a, um, a, a title for English software, which was called, I think, the Grunenberg Linkwood Language System. Right. They, they asked me to, uh, to write that. I think he, the, the guy sort of licensed it across all sort of computers. And I did the Atari version on four languages. Wow. Which, which made me a bit of money. Well, that's good. I don't think it sold well. Time Slip, you mentioned you did on the C16 first? I did, yeah. Although I did Multiboot before that, which yeah. was um, not for sale. That was something I wrote for myself, where, you know, it's a, a disc. Multiboot itself started because I had a few friends that had copies of discs and we would swap them, but it meant, you know, you had to have multiple disks. So I just created this system of uh, uh, putting multiple uh, programs and games onto a disk. It was only for me and a couple of friends, but it seemed to spread. I'm sure the disk spread because <laughs> we've, I sh I'm sure I had some of those disks too. We would try to buy as much software as we could, but it all dried up. So after finding, like you'd find software in certain places, but when it was gone and there was no place to buy software anymore, the only place to get it was for free. And it was sad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was sad. But um, so you made the multi-boot and then um, yeah. that was for you and your buddies. But the yeah. next commercial, what, what was next commercially in your career? 
Well, I guess then I did do some mastering for, for English software because they wanted games to be put onto the Atari Smash Hits. Got it. And that, again, uh, secondly, so I for Jack and Jack as well on a few of those. Um, but then, to be honest, the, the market here for Atari was, yeah. was pretty grim. It was so, um, yeah, I moved on to the, the Commodore 64. Uh, although I did use the Atari 800 as my development system. Now, what games because did you I, make on the 64? Or, um... uh, started off with another Jet with Jack game, which was called Legend of the Knucklehole. I did <laughs> night games. Um, I'm going to look at my list now. Yeah, night, night games as well, which was another one. I did a few on the 64, but just after the um, I did my follow-up Jet with Jack game, I was asked to do some stuff on the Commodore 16. Right. And I think I did about uh, four games in a row on that. Now, the way that the Commodore 16 screen is set up, is it similar to the Atari 800? Because it seems like when I look at the C16 versions of some of the games, you have almost as many colors on those screens as you do on the Atari 800 versions. So strangely, the, the, the Commodore 16 plus four, you know, and, and the, the separate plus four thing, which had uh, 64K of memory, were, had loads more colors than the, the C64, but it didn't have sprites. Right. So it was purely a character-driven machine. Um, so it, it had a lot of difficulties, but the the screen resolution was basically the same, which is why a lot of the games just convert straight across. On time slip on the Commodore 16, these the, the straightforward sort of four-color mode, basically. But but with the Commodore 16, it had a, a much wider range of colors. Commodore 64 is very restricted. And on the Commodore 64, it's only like... 64 is... It's 16 yeah. colors and, and like th three per block or something like that? Like per well, green. The, the Commodore 64 is sort of the same as the Atari, but if you want multicolor mode, so if you want the, you know, the, the four color characters, you, you can only choose out of a palette of seven Got and it. black. Got it. So it's so really... You see a lot of blue and brown on the Commodore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Blue, brown, green, uh, red, yellow, white, and then you're stumped, you know, whereas with, with the Commodore 16, you've got a much better better range. So you mentioned that the 16 can have full, how many how many characters in a character set on the Commodore 16 when you redefine it? 256. And yeah, on the 8 bits, it's 128. So yeah. you would have to flip between those character sets. Well, I mean, time slip on the Atari, that, that's got a character set per zone. Per, per that, three yeah, sets. and it's got a couple of other character sets to, for doing stuff, copying to, so, so you can get some lovely uh, effects by having a blank character set on screen and then just feeding the data onto it so you, oh. you can build things up. So, so in something like Time Slip, when you're building that screen, if you have, you have the top section, it's, yep. uh, it looks it looks brilliant, by the way. Um, anyway, so the access is really hard, but um, yes, I know. <laughs> so the top section can be one character set, and then you can have another section switch set to a new character set, draw that, and then switch it to the other one to draw. Well, you with on the Atari, you, you've got the, your display list uh, with all the interrupts. So you, it's the interrupt that handles it. The the um, the text row at the top and the three text rows that give you the the, the updates, they're all one character set. And then you've got an extra character set per zone. And it just gets switched on the fly as you're coming down the screen. 
So one of the one of the brilliant things about it, even though it's a little bit limited, is that you can use high res graphics to build out um, eight by eight blocks, and you can change that character set almost on every line if you had enough memory to do it. Right? Say if you had a meg of memory, yeah. you could build almost anything you wanted. But um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then now, mo what about moving those characters? So so when I look at your screen. I see those not moving eight pixels at a time. I see them moving one pixel, two pixels. They're, they're smoothly scrolling. Yeah. So I know that you can smoothly scroll the screen, but how are you smoothly scrolling your your sprite? Is it is it a sprite or is it a character also that's moving? And some of the well, other yeah, well, well, the zone when it scrolls, that it's just that you 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 allow that zone to to scroll and you you um, constantly update the fine scroll value. And then, and then you do a coarse scroll across. This is for each of the actual uh, zones when they scroll. And the character itself is just player missile graphics, where you just alter its sex position. You don't see many games like that on the on the Atari 800. You do that use that many colors and things at, at a time. You do see yeah. some. Um, you do see like um, Zeppelin, that was a game by Synapse. Doesn't use as many colors, but uses the same idea of breaking that screen up into the eight by eight blocks. Okay, so I played Burks. I'm trying to figure yeah. this game out. You made the Burke games first on the C16? Yeah, because the C16 is so restricted in in memory, and I just tried to find something that was, that was fun to do, it, you know. Burke's 3 yeah. was on the C16. You have Burke's 4 and you have baby Burke's. <laughs> what are the difference yeah. between those? Well, it started off on the C16 as, as Burke's, which was just a game I wrote. And then they asked me to write another version, which was Major Blink, which was completely different. And then uh, they asked for a, a, another follow-up. So I then did Burke's 3, which is basically Burke's, but with multiple rooms. And Got it's it. Burke's 3 that evolved into Burke's 4 on the Atari because it was expanded so much that it became a completely different game, really. It kind of, to me, Burke's 4 seems like, Dal they ever played Daleks, that old computer game? Where basically, no. you, it's like it's like a it's a version. It's kind of like a Doctor Who game where like you yeah. move one square, and you're trying to get the Daleks to move into one another and 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 <laughs> and, and hit each, and hit each other, but then combined with Berserk, right? Like it's kind of like a combat. Yeah, it's a but yeah. I mean, Berks is is a Berserk Robotron style game. Now, in that, what can you shoot and what can you not shoot? The Berks themselves. They're the things that you can you can shoot, but the other things that move after you and chase you, they you, you just stun those. So you also use the same mechanic in Major Blink, sort of. It's almost like Amadar. Yeah, yeah. There's a game called Amadar. There's also a game called Kid Grid, where you're trying to go around the squares and fill them in. Yeah. And there's some things you can shoot and some things you, you can't. And I could not get past one level in that game. <laughs> no, I tried like nine times. There's because there's like one final square to go around and all of the enemies would hover around there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. You, you, you do get, there are ways of doing it. You know, you get used to doing things in particular ways. Oh, I, I, you're right, I'm sorry. When I when you die, you can quickly go up to that square and go around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, those but are brilliant. I like those. It's always difficult to, to judge the, the sort of difficulty level on a game because I, I can whiz through uh, major blink from first screen right the way through. Well, you know what to do on it. You know who. Yeah, you know exactly. 
you know who to stun and who not to stun. Yeah. And then you can go to the next room. There was a there was a game called Seamus that seems a little bit. Yeah, like yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, but I do. I mean, the I just want to say that even though you think you can't um, animate or whatever, it, your it, everything is so beautiful and colorful. Like of your four games, which I'm going to make a video on for our video channel. They're the four most colorful games on the Atari computers. I mean, on the even your game on the ST, which we'll get to, is much w better programmed for a first effort on the ST than almost anyone else I've seen. Like, uh, in yeah. fact, not just a first effort for a commercial effort, even though you only made one. Um, well, I'd almost forgotten about that game. You know, it's what? one of those games. It was just in 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 my life. It was something that I thought I would be programming the ST and Amiga for a long time. I invested in it, but life went in a different direction. We'll get, we'll talk about that. So yeah. most of the people that listen to this would be interested in the Atari computers, but we like yeah. to cover all things that have to do with the eighties too, even though I didn't have any Commodore computers and the C16 has a special C16 plus four, even though I didn't have one, I'm really interested in that computer a little bit. So tell me the differences in trying to code between that and the Atari 800 when you're trying to move those games over. I, I guess I was lucky because I they started on the Commodore 16, so it was much easier to bring them back to the Atari 8-bit. But I, I, I mean, time slip just started off because I didn't want to have to scroll a whole screen. Simple <laughs> right. as that. So I just thought, well, split it into zones. I've only got a little bit to move at a time. It's still a blooming nightmare trying to get, you know, get it done in a frame. But, and on the C16, you could, how did you, how, how are you able to scroll that one piece of the screen at the time too? Is it, is it difficult well, to do? Same, no, no, it's quite simple. It's, they, they've got a, um, a fine scroll register as well. Oh, okay. So, you, okay. so you just set it at the start of a zone and then reset it at the end of a zone back to zero. So nothing else scrolls. And then once, once it goes, you know, you fully scrolled eight bits. You have to course scroll it, so you have to shift everything in screen memory across. Of course, on the Atari, it's a lot, lot easier, really, because you don't actually have to do a proper course scroll. You can just alter the the bit, the bytes in the uh, display list to oh, point okay. to shift along. You know, so it's it's a lot easier. Whereas on the Commodore 64 and the 16, you physically have to grab the screen and shift it across, and color memory as well. Which is the thing that that cripples the sort of C sixteen sixty four if it's not done right, because it's not just screen memory, but you've got color memory as well. Got it. Tell me a little bit about that. How does do you remember how the color memory worked? On yeah, it's it basically it's it's a completely parallel map to the screen. So for every character you've got on screen, you've got a parallel byte in a color memory map, and that determines what color that particular thing is so if you can imagine the whole thing has to scroll across by one you have to move the color memory as well got it so so, so you have you have two different registers that can one controls the placement of the byte on the screen the white dot for instance and one of them controls the color map that, that's where the that's why the c16 is is a lot sort of more flexible in terms of color you get way more color in it and of course you can you can mix high res and uh, multicolor graphics in the same display as well. So they didn't do Which display list, but they have you be able to stop it, like halt, halt the screen as you're going in. And, oh no, no, on the same line, you, same you line. can just oh. yeah, you can just mix it. On the the Commodore 16 version of Time Slip, 
has got some um, high res characters. You, you you don't get a multi character high res, but you can you can set the um, the multi color uh, character mode on the the bytes for the screen memory. If you see what I mean, and it'll say if it's a high res character or uh, a multi color character. So you can mix on on one line. Hey everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. Do you have fond memories of trying to code on the Atari 800? Because I've seen you do it again recently. So well, yeah, the, the Atari is is just my fave. It's yeah. it, it was the machine really that I loved. Yeah, so what brought you back to do Burke's um, 2020? I see right now. I just yesterday I downloaded yeah. Burke's Baby Burke's 2020, Major Blink 2020, and Time Slip 2020. And I'd seen Time Slip on Atari Age, and I'd also seen a video of it from uh, one of the homebrew places and I, I posted it up and um, yeah. I started I downloaded that one you, did you just find them and put them up or did you make did you make changes to them what have you done to those to make them well I guess I guess when I did all my stuff on floppy disk back in the 80s uh, and early 90s I had you know hundreds of floppy disks and uh, then also the the smaller disks for the, the Atari as well and they were in my garage for years and years and years. And I thought it's probably about time I tried to get these archived. So a few years ago, I, I actually went through and, and I converted up, I ripped all of my floppies, uh, as many as I could, and got them onto the PC. And then once I'd managed to get some of them, um, you know, completely across, I thought, well, I wonder if they'll assemble on, uh, on a PC as well, and that's really where it came from. So you, so you downloaded an, an emulator and assembler, sent assembler, and you tried it again. Yeah, no, well, I actually did. <laughs> I did do it with Sin assembler, but I mean, it's to be honest, it's very dated now compared to what's available. So I, I use uh, Woodson, the, the Woodson, Woodson, and yeah, and uh, Altera with both that combination. It's just amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, amazing. brilliant, isn't it? To yeah, build. it's just, I, I couldn't believe it when I started using it. Of course, the, the SynAssembler source code is all tokenized. So on a disk, it's garbage. So I had to write a converter program in the first place. So I did have to r run SynAssembler on the 800 in Altera. And then uh, I got it so that I could run through all of my listings and convert it to to modern, right? Because you had to have files that you could pull out and use yeah. in Woodson somehow. God, yeah. got it. Yeah. Wow, what a pain in the butt. So, we, but you did. So, I noticed that you have like um, you have a, a major blink from 2018. You yeah. have a Burks four from 2019, <laughs> and then you have the 2020 version. So this is just you recompiling yeah. and making fast making. No, well, the reason the reason for the 2020s was purely because somebody asked me if I could write. Burks for for the five two hundred, like is that how you say it? The, the, the console. Oh, fifty two hundred. Yeah, fifty two hundred. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But, but which of course we never saw over here. No. 
know. And but, it's a king uh, of the we're not into it. It's yeah, only got sixteen k, but um, yeah. but were you able to do it? Yep, yeah, I could stand oh. that. And then I, I thought, well, I've done that. So now I'll do, uh, Burks and Baby Burks oh, and Time Slip. I see. And in doing that, I actually thought, well, why not improve them as well? And so I then thought, well, I'll make those available as well for the Atari. So you have, so those are, so you have 5200 versions of all those yeah. also. I didn't know that. That's great. I have a 5200. Yeah. I never, it, it's so, the, the controllers don't work, but I have the, I could put in the emulator <laughs> and try it there. But well, um, I've never, I've never tried it in, in real life. But I've, I've um, a couple of uh, people on, on Atari Edge Forum, forum helped by, you know, I sent them the, a copy and they tried it on real hardware. And it, it works. It worked. That's great. Yeah, apart from the, the controllers a bit. Difficult. Yeah. Oh, and, and <laughs> all your, I mean, I do have a digital controller for the 5200. Yeah. So it's kind of like it makes it work, but not that, not the, the, the regular controller. You were going to go to the ST and Amiga and you did make a game. Well, I, I did. reminded yeah. you of it. It's, yeah. it's Paramax, which you're trying to go up the, a pyramid through a bunch of rooms. Yeah. And it is brilliant, actually. I think it's great, <laughs> but I still can't figure out what's going on. Like, I have to read more <laughs> instructions. But um, I how remember. did you get that many moving characters? Um, see the most things on the ST. If someone is just their first game, you're not going to get that fluid of character animation. Everything looks really good. It's done so well. Did you do it pure sixty-eight thousand assembly um, yeah. code? Is that, yeah, yeah, it was complete. I had a, um, I bought a, I think it was called DevPack, Dev Pack. which was a development system, which also allowed you to um, link from your master machine to a slave. So you, which is what I was doing for all the Commodore 16 and 64 programs. I wrote all those on the Atari and just sent it down the joystick controllers right. to the 64 and yeah, with all stuff and uh, handlers that I made myself. And so doing this on the ST was a similar way of working really. You didn't write it on the Atari 800 and put it on the ST, right? You wrote it on the ST. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. For the, but when I went on to ST, the ST, I had a Mega ST4, which was my master machine. And then I downloaded it to, I think it's a 520 I had, and also to an Amiga as oh. well. Now, the port to the Amiga, was that just straight 68,000 code yeah. remapping the bit right. planes so that they worked yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Um, do you, what do you do? You remember anything about Cody on the ST at all? Something uh, do you, that you enjoyed, didn't enjoy? Um, because you well, yeah, it was it was fun. Uh, you know, it was completely different. Uh, I had to get sort of just used to the different language, but it's not that that far different from the six five zero two. I felt it was quite straightforward. You, well, you do have a lot of registers to put stuff data into. Yeah, right? it's a little it's bit just, easier. Yeah, and he's yeah. There's loads more you could do with it, basically. I'm going to put a video up of Paramax. Other people have it. There's only one video on YouTube of your game, like so. <laughs> I'm going to try and. I'm play not surprised. It. Well, I've completely I, forgotten about it. Well, that's why I got it. We got. I mean, even though you're not going to get money for it, unfortunately. Although we <laughs> do have part of our podcast where games that we loved that we had to pirate back in the days, we actually. <laughs> have some episodes that we're doing where we're contacting that developer and, it, and if we love the game but couldn't have purchased it, we're paying them $40 for the game <laughs> so that they'll get like their $40 or they, more than they would have got. Um, but, um, and we, the, there's, uh, the first one of those is coming out in a couple months because we, we have to track down <laughs> the developer of one of the games that we love. I couldn't buy a copy of. But um, so Paramax, you did that then, then right at that point, you finished that game 
But who's the publisher at that point? Is it Arc or? Uh, it was well. I did it for Atari in the UK. Oh, okay. That is Arc. So they, they published it. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was it was always really difficult getting that game written anyway because they they arranged for an artist and a musician as well to to do some of the work for me, and it was always a bit troublesome getting stuff through. Did you make any money off that at all? Yeah. Well, I I suppose I. I I got paid for doing it. You got an advance, so you got an advance on yeah. that. That, that took no no royalties afterwards. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where it came out. My guess would be, Atari shoved it out with one of their discovery machines because yeah. um, their packages to get extra games on there. But brilliant game, by the way. I love it so far. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to get through it. But so after that, what happened in your career? Well, let me have a look at my list. Go ahead, because yeah, my course. memory is terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah. So after after uh, Pyramax. I got asked by a sort of a fairly local software firm if I'd go back to the 64 and uh, they were doing Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2 and the guy who was doing it I think had run off somewhere so they asked if I'd finish it, finish it off uh, which I did and I did a couple of other projects for them including Road Riot on the Lynx which I, I started and that had sort of was fairly near completion but there was all sorts of problems getting money from them so it was just put on hold oh and unfortunately I, another 6502 I, machine by the way that's another yeah example. yeah no the, the links was brilliant i had to pro all the proper gear you know the whole development system on an amiga which was very strange well you know what <laughs> you know well i think the guys who rj the guys who built the links are some of the guys that built the amiga rj McCoy. yeah and so they had Amiga. So when they built software development kit for the Lynx, it was on an Amiga. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved the machine. It was brilliant. It was really good. But of course, it was really difficult around in the 80s to, to get money from doing games. Very, very difficult. And I was constantly having to sort of duck and dive, you know, trying to get uh, maybe a couple of projects on the go at the same time. It did kind of seem like the, the, the um, computer market, even though it seemed to be professional, it seemed like it was hard to get paid. Everybody has it the same was. problem. Unless you're the oh, Bitmap yeah. Brothers somehow or something like that. Yeah. But um, but when you went to consoles, those were run by real professional corporations, weren't they? Like, was there was there a little bit more? Uh, it was completely different. I mean, the, the last 64 program I did was a game called uh, First Samurai, which was uh, the Commodore 64 version of a title they were doing in-house. It was a London-based firm. They were really good. And they were doing it on the Amiga. And I'm not sure if they did an Atari version or not. They probably did. Um, and PC. And just as it was about to be released, the publisher, publisher um, went bust. Mm. So there was a bit of a problem there. But that the artist who helped me out on that uh, project, they were just starting up a company. Yeah, up, up uh, quite a long way away from where I lived, and they asked me to do stuff, and that's what uh, developed into the rest of my games career. Ooh, I was okay. with them for I don't know twenty years or so. Where were you at the time living? Well, I was on the south south coast of England, okay. and they were right up in the Midlands, so six way, hours away. Yeah, yeah, long way, and uh, they they just said, that, in fact, a similar thing with them. They said we've. Um, we're trying to get our company off the ground. Um, we've got a game, but our program has just gone to the States to go full time because we can't afford to pay him. Can you help? And so I finished that program off 
And then they asked me to do um, Drop Zone on the, the NES and on the Game Boy, believe it or not. Wow. Which was bonkers, you know, but they got done. And then Jungle Book. And it, by then, we were starting to work with Disney as well and Virgin and Disney, which was like a step up, should we say. Drop Zone on the 800 and the Commodore 64, one of the greatest games ever made. Amazing. Um, how do you replicate that speed on the NES? Like, how was that done? It, it was fine. And, it, you know, um, I got the original source code from Archie McLean as well. So that helped. And then it was a case of trying to just, you know, do sort of convert it in a way that worked for the machine. So, and, and the thing here was that the big difference here was they paid well. But, well, they paid okay, but always on time. Fine. Every other company I'd worked for in the 80s, you know, I'd have to drive miles and miles and miles sort of and sit in their in their offices until they bring the check out. Pulling teeth to get paid is... Absolutely. But when I, when I worked with this company, who were called Eurocom, they, they paid on on time every time. And then we moved on to the, the SNES, Super Nintendo, and I did uh, Super Drop Zone, which was a, oh, wow. like an updated version and brutal. And then the big game was uh, Cold, uh, Cold Shadow Maui Mallard, it was called, which was a Donald Duck game for Disney. And that, <laughs> that probably changed my life because it was, um, it was a very difficult time, shall we say. And, and I ended up having to, to live in Derby, which is where this company was for three months at the end. Oh. And you know, it was that, that thing about working through the night, seven days, seven days a week, solid, to get the program finished. That led though to, um, to doing other games for them. Hercules, based on the, the uh, movie, and Tarzan and stuff, oh, wow. you know, it was really good. And the, the company did loads and loads of movie tie-ins, Harry Potter, Pirates of the Caribbean, all sorts of things. But by then I'd moved away from programming to being a producer. Perfect, that well that's the natural progression. The number of all-nighters was ridiculous. <laughs> so, and, and when did you retire? You finally retired, you said just a little while uh, ago? Probably about seven or eight years ago, I guess. What, the the company was, finally went under. What was the final game you worked on when you were when you were working there, or as a, a producer? A game called Disney Universe. Oh, on um, on the Wii. Yeah, on the Wii and something else as well. What's that? Yep. Yeah. Um, and also we did a few of the James Bond games, but I I wasn't on that team. My my team generally did the kiddie style games, you know. Any plans at all to take your 6502 skills and go back and write any new games for any of these systems just for fun, right? Like you're retired, but like I'm sure you're, you're the skill that you display in the four or five games that I've played on the Atari 8-bit shows that you could probably make any game you wanted to given the time. Well, time and the, and the assets as well. I'm, I'm not an artist. <laughs> what I mean is, so say you ha say assets weren't a problem, would you? Yeah. And th but there are people out there who want to draw eight bit graphics. By the way, is it something you would consider? I, I think I'm I'm just so old school that I'd like working the way I used to work, you know. And which which means, you know, really cobbling something together with loads of loads of stuff I've done. It might not be the nicest looking thing, yeah. but but yeah, I'll get there in the end. The stuff you've done looks great, and That's um. So it works better for people like you or I who, I mean, you're probably more artistic than I am, but 
because I only have four colors I can use, and I only have eight lines I can put them on, I only have I can put two colors yeah. next to one another, it kind of limits you down to what you can do, and you have to be really creative. You can't be, you can't be painting the Sistine Chapel with it. So you make a tree that looks like a tree. It's green and brown. I mean, so... <laughs> Yeah. Well, that, that's my way of doing things. <laughs> a squad uh, that looks a little bit like it's supposed to look like. Yeah. It does. And so, so far, I mean, your, your, your space games have been great. I mean, everything everything's really good. If you were going to pick out one thing about programming the 800, 400, 800, 1200, yeah. XLXE, what's your favorite feature of that machine? Well, I think it's, it's the flexibility, really, with the display lists. And you, you, you can just do all sorts of stuff with it. It's, you know, and I think you can be creative in what you can do. I've, I've seen some of the tech demos people put together and, you know, my jaw drops on some of the stuff that people can do. Exactly. There's some people that are putting 16 colors on a line from a uh, one of the GTI modes. It, and then they're changing the 16 colors on every line. Yeah, I know. And they're painting some beautiful picture. And I'm all, I don't know how you did that. <laughs> but I, I know, <laughs> technically, I know how they did it. But I don't know yeah. how they got it to look that way, you know. I so, know. But, um, I wanna, it's, it's, you know, let's like say I'm in awe about things like uh, Altera. You know, the way, the way that um, you can get source level debugging and that. Thing, things I would have given me IT for back in the 80s. Right, it's absolutely right. brilliant the way Tools you that you would have written yourself if you had yeah, the chance. Yeah. I, well, I had, to, I had to write editors myself you know, at the time because you, there just wasn't anything available, but nothing at all like the the stuff that's available now. It's just amazing. That's great, John. Well, um, it's really nice talking to you. I'm really yeah, excited you about too. your both your ST and your Atari and your Commodore. Even though you know at the time Commodore, <laughs> fought, but now we can have appreciation for those machines, right? Like, no, I do too. Yeah, we appreciate those. Like at the time, you couldn't we couldn't afford it, so it was the enemy. But it's not the enemy anymore because I have them all <laughs> emulated. So I have them all, right? I still yeah. Atari, my original computer was the Atari 800, um, and yeah. it's still the one that we reminisce about all the time because it just was this brilliant machine well, that me kind too. of got passed by. Um, your games have added a new level of um, fun to the Atari, to my Atari 800 experience because thank you. Honestly, I had never played any of them before. Before yeah. now, I don't know why I'd never seen Jet Blue Jack. I had Jet, Jet yeah. Blue Jack. I'd played. It's just so hard. <laughs> I keep it's not once my, you get used to it. I keep hitting my head on stuff. Anyway, I know. Um, no, I know. I, I I really should do a follow up. It's easy, shouldn't I? No, we should do is just write like a little little blurb tutorial about how to survive the first screen, <laughs> like where you duck, where you turn. You know, anyway. But, yeah, I know. Um, no, but but hey, really nice talking to you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. No um, problem at all. I'm going to edit this and put it out next week. I didn't see if you have a Twitter account or anything like that. No, I, I I'm not into that side of things. You're only on Atari honest. age. So I yeah, will yeah. send you a message and a link. You just listen to it if you want to right on our website. You just click on it. Cool. You don't have to download a podcast or anything like that. Um, but we do. Good. It will be out there. But uh, it, was, it was really nice talking to you. And sometime uh, when I'm start writing my 6502 programs, you might have some <laughs> phone calls. No, you might have some messages like, what the hell am I doing? Why? Anytime if I can help, that is, if I know what I'm doing. But anyway, thank you very much, John. We'll um, hope to talk to you Thanks. soon and have a good evening. It's a Friday yeah. night. And you took time out of your Friday night to talk to me. So that's no problem at all. Anyway, thanks a lot, John. Yes. Thanks, then. Bye. Wasn't John just a wonderful subject for interview? 
Such a nice, nice person. He had a long career, but he's still programming the 8-bits with Woodson, the assembly language editor and compiler that is probably the best tool for programming the Atari systems right now. Okay, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the video of his games posted on the Into the Vertical Blank YouTube and IntoTheVerticalBlank.com. Next week is a news week for the Atari systems. We will scour the sites for fun news on all Atari systems, but if you have anything to report, please send it to us at IntoTheVerticalBlank at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter or Facebook. Until next time, Into the Vertical Blank. I'm going to take you out with a song by Tony Longworth called Chill Wave. Please visit Tony Longworth's Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Longworth. Link is in the show notes. Data, V blank ending. An 8-bit Rocket Studios production.